Welcome into Real Pod Wednesdays. Dan Hope joined as always by Griffin Strom. A loaded episode coming to you this week. We've got a lot to talk about. A very interesting press conference at the Woody Hayes Athletic Center on Tuesday. We spent uh, more than 90 minutes hearing from Ryan Day, Jim Knowles, and Kevin Wilson, and uh, learned a lot of interesting stuff from that. I've had, you know, pro day last week, uh, defensive line interviews last week too. So we've got a lot of football stuff to talk about on this week's show, but we're going to start off with an exclusive interview here on Real Pod Wednesdays with Nadine Muzaral, who is the head coach of the Ohio State women's hockey team, which just won its first national championship last week so really excited to welcome nadine to the show and and get her perspective on how ohio state women's hockey won its first ever national title well nadine it's been a little over a week since you won the national championship just how does it feel to be a national champion you know, obviously we're deeply honored in bringing home the national championship and the impact that means for the state of Ohio and growing the game for the young girls. You know, when you're in the moment, there's so much going on and so much activity that you don't really get to process and enjoy that moment because I feel like you miss so much. And then, you know, Alex here and our choreographer who did a lot of the highlight videos and, you know, he was able to demonstrate and show all these moments that I missed, you know, and it just brought a tear to my eye to see the joy on the girls' faces and, you know, the hard work they've been in over the years was really shown. And there was one in particular moment where, I forget what channel it was, they had a video on the in the restaurant near the Blue Jackets Arena near Nationwide, and we saw a packed, you know, restaurant cheering and excited when we won, you know, strangers hugging each other, and then the young girls' youth group being interviewed after of the pride they have in our program and the excitement that they have a potential future to come and play for their home state. And I thought that was very emotional and, and impactful for me as a coach. When you reflect back on this season, what do you think it is that made this group so special and allowed you all to make history? Yeah, you know what, it's not just one thing. Like, I can't just reflect back and say it's this one thing that, you know, made this happen or... You know, I think it really started, honestly, in the summer when, you know, we worked our butts off to, to get these transfers to come in or to be more of a complete season. We've been knocking on the door for the past four or five, four out of the five years. And we, you know, we were at three frozen fours. And then I think we could have been four out of four frozen fours, but COVID happened. And that's what the year we won the conference tournament. And we, I felt like we were always one or two defensemen too short or one or two forwards too short in our depth chart. And we were overworking a lot of our players. I mean, we only had 18 skaters. And so what we knew is we have to have a little bit more depth. And so I thought I did a pretty good job this summer finding those eight recruits that made a big difference in having that complete team. Our third line was instrumental in, in our success. And that's what you really need when you go toe-to-toe to in a national championship game against another great team with depth. Coach, I know you just kind of touched on one of those uh, special moments, you know, afterwards, but anyone in particular reach out to you or extend a congratulatory uh, message that, you know, really helped the moment sink in and just, you know, was a cool moment for you since winning the, the title, obviously. You know, it was really awesome to hear from my high school, you know, teachers and my high school coaches, you know, that they're still fans and, 
watching from afar and cheering from afar that always have your back. But one that gave me a good chuckle was when John Tortorelli texted me right after and he says, it's about time you got it done. (laughs) (laughs) And so I have said in, in the past how John Tortorelli and I have grown a relationship in my second year when he reached out to me when we went to our first Frozen Four ever for the school program. And so that was five years ago. And through that time, he's texted me from time to time, giving me a boost of confidence or congratulatory text or a phone call. And, you know, they helped us last year on our power play. So, you know, that one gave me a pretty good laugh. And you've already, you know, racked up so many accolades in your career already in, in national championships as a player and coach before. But, you know, where does this one kind of rank uh, among those experiences? And is this maybe the most gratifying one of your career so far? I'd personally say it's more more gratifying. And the reason is, you know, what I wanted as a player was the first ever for Minnesota as well. It was the third season of that program. And I was part of the inaugural team. So to win the first national championship for the women's hockey team there, and I believe it was also the first national championship for women's athletics at Minnesota. That was very emotional and important for me, obviously. But I think for me, and my personal take on this, is a lot harder to win, I feel, as a coach, you know, from that perspective than as a player, because this was, there's no secret that this team was flawed before, you know, I came in six years ago and just to see the growth and to build that, you know, it was like remodeling a house that had a great foundation just needed to be remodeled. And, you know, that foundation being OSU and knowing that you could have anything you needed and all the right resources due to the money we get from our football program, you know, and I think what was make, made this part more gratifying was, I felt like the entire state of Ohio was rooting for us. You know, in the past, when I was at Minnesota, there's so many other D1 hockey teams in Minnesota, so you don't feel like that whole state's behind you. Whereas here at Ohio State, I mean, everybody was rooting for you, and you felt that. And I noticed that just walking around campus now or going to burgers and having my meal paid for or, <laughs> you know, just walking into restaurants or going to Kosai and people know you. And it's just very warm feeling that the whole state really wanted you to win. And I know our girls felt that too. You mentioned how, you know, the program was flawed when you took it over six years ago. What's the biggest difference people would notice if they look at, you know, your team, your program when you first came in and where it is right now? Well, the obvious one that somebody from the outside would see is, you know, our win record. <laughs> They're going to see how we're winning and what, you know, how we play and the depth that we have. Um, but I think for me, the hardest piece was growing that culture. You know, people were okay with losing or they weren't okay, but they didn't know how to win and what that sacrifice meant and what it looked like and what that uh, standard was and how to hold that accountable. And I think, you know, there's a lot of great coaches out there that can coach the game and do X's and O's, but I think it's more the leadership that's the tough part. And that's where I said before, I feel like I became a better leader when I became a mom because you understand and know what tough love is. And some people can do only one of those. They can either be hard and everything's tough and they don't have the respect of their team or they only want to be a friend and they only have the love, but they don't have the execution and the accountability. And so you have to find that middle ground, which can be difficult. I think that's what we've done a great job over the years is 
demanding excellence because it's Ohio State and that's our standard and that's where we want to be. But having our kids love us and respect us and you can see that by people not transferring. You know, they all want to come back and they all want to continue to be a Buckeye because they really, truly care for each other you and their staff. You mentioned people not transferring, but you've been very open about how you used the transfer portal to make the roster better. Was that something that you embraced immediately when that started becoming a thing? And and what do you think are the keys to using the transfer portal successfully? Here's the thing. I mean, I have the same rules as everybody else. We just used it to our advantage. I mean, that's not going to be the case every year, right? I mean, if people really knew our team, they would understand we had a lot of money because we didn't have a lot of players. We had very few players compared to most people. And even after eight transfers and two freshmen, we only had 25 players versus like Northeastern's who had 28 or Ivy League that had in the 30s. So I think we did a really good job of utilizing that transfer portal to our advantage while managing our roster size. Now, next year, that's going to be a completely different story because we have a big senior class. So each year, it's going to be different based on your class. And then the bleeding is going to stop soon because the COVID year, extra year, ends in the 23 year. Right. So that's why we used it to our advantage, and it worked well. You've said before that your program has benefited from the success of Ohio State football. How has you know the resources that Ohio State football brings in benefited your program? Well, for example, everybody wants to come and work at the Ohio State because they see football and they see excellence and they're like, wow, I want to be a part of that, right? You want to be a part of a winning program. And so because of that, my staff is pretty elite because they all want to come and be part of the athletic program. You know, it starts with our strength and conditioning, our nutritionists, our medical team, right? And then the things that we can offer is we can have meals after every single practice. You know, we get nice catered, healthy meals after every practice. And I think that is instrumental because you do all the work. It's like a nice car. You can't put whatever gas you want in a nice Ferrari, right? You got to take care of that car and you got to make sure you put in the right fuel. Same thing with our nutrition. We're very smart about how we treat these athletes and how we fuel them up. I think the resources that we can provide for them in terms of collecting data for our strength and conditioning coach We provide aura rings so we can, you know, check in on their sleep and their stress. And then we also have pullers that will talk about their recovery. And, you know, I just think that we bring in a lot of science to the game that takes out the subjectivity from a coaching point of view sometimes. And you find that balance. I mean, some of it's subjective, obviously, but I'll tell you like after every single period, I look at our strength coach. How are their how are their numbers? What's their workload? What's their recovery? So that can help dictate sometimes playing time. And then also he's very instrumental in us, you know, practice planning. Their workload needs to be this much today, you know. And I think that helps us know how much we can push them and how much we might need to, you know, taper off. You mentioned all these things that you do have, but you know, you are playing in a smaller, older facility at the OSU ice rink have you made any push to get a new facility for women's hockey or or try to you know upgrade the facilities that you do have boy do you think we need something different (laughs) i've heard from people that do (laughs) well i'll just say we've won with the, the let's be honest the ugliest rink in collegiate hockey and we still won a national championship and so i'll recruit the kid that doesn't care about that and is not externally driven 
right? Because I want that blue collar kid who never had that growing up anyway. But I would always embrace a new hockey rink. And I got to give a lot of credit to Gene Smith and his team as, you know, that's his mission. I think Ohio State has done a fantastic job of building, I think, five new facilities in the last four years with the strength and conditioning facility, the shoemaker, Cavelli, you know, which kind of took over St. John, right? All multiple sports over there. The Jennings put it up and then Ty Tucker tennis facility. And now the co-ed lacrosse stadium, that's five within four or five years. That's remarkable. And they're state of the art. And we are now the next project. That is Gene Smith's mission. And that is what he says he's going to leave behind before he retires. So we are his final mission. So I feel very confident that he will get this done with his team. I have, and I've been great. I have been, not I've been great. I have been respected to be a part of that planning. So it's been great for me to kind of put my fingerprints on, on, on that uh, blueprint a little bit. So we're definitely in the talks of that. We had a question from a listener. They, they noted, they said, this year's team was relentlessly quick to the puck, but never in a reckless way. Can you describe the way you coach and train them to go that hard, but to also always be covering for each other? Well, that was well said. I like, I might have to use that. We always <laughs> say relentlessly, you know, pursuit for perfection. But I, I like that they say we're not reckless. That's great. Whoever that was, smart. You know, that that is how we train, regardless if it's, systematic or if it's in the weight room or in practice of course you have to be able to be controlled too right and so I think that is through repetition I think that is also you know how we train is very physical very fast and even when I repetitions like we will do each drill fast 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 it's kind of like in football when they don't huddle right and then they just set up and they go and they try to throw off the other team and that's sometimes how we train too because that's how we want to play so even when we're practicing I'll blow the whistle quick so that in their head they've got to adapt you know and I think that has worked very well for us when we're on the ice because then it seems a little slower in the game too because in practice it comes so fast and we can kind of cheat practice because we know what we're going to do too right like find the opponent going against somebody but we do play very physical, we do play very fast, and that's why our fitness is key and instrumental in our success because we cannot continue to play the way we do if we're not physically fit. We will just burn out. But I do appreciate that listener saying that because it has to be controlled because I don't need them going 100 miles in the wrong direction. Now that you've won one national championship, you know how do you build off that? How do you keep this program continuing to move forward? Yeah, you know, that's holding them to a high standard, which I think they already do. In the summer, in the spring right now, like, you know, we get to go on the ice again next week and then continuing to maintain that mentality of winning and, you know, and pushing them in the weight room and them getting on the ice and holding themselves accountable. And I I think that's already grown, you know, with the fact that our leadership knows. We have Emma Malte coming back, who is going to be one of our best players, obviously winning a gold medal with Team Canada. And, you know, she's so excited that we won, but at the same time, she she wanted to be a part of that as well. And so I know that she's going to take the reins on that and making sure that we, we do all we can to repeat. And I've told the girls, and we talked about that, you know, there's so much honor in what you guys have done and what you've grown and with this program and this state in particular. It's not like Minnesota where I work before and you can just select whoever you want because you have a, 
a huge, you know, population of young girls that play. You know, we're kind of centrally located where there's no loyalty to us, right? So uh, I think when people come here, they really want to be a Buckeye. And I just think that they'll hold themselves accountable because it's so hard to do it again. You know, the first one, that could happen. You know, it takes a lot. But to do it again, I think, is very difficult as well. And, you know, you put that bug in their ear like your mission isn't over because I don't want to be that team that wins one and then goes missing for years. You mentioned Emma coming back. I know Sophie, you know, has another year of eligibility and is planning to come back. How big is that to have her for another year? And were you disappointed that she didn't win the Patty Kazmaier? I'm sorry. Did you say Emma Malte and then you said uh, Sophie? Oh, I thought you said Emma Malte in the beginning. Sorry. Was I upset that Sophie Jakes didn't win the Patty Kazmaier? Was that your question? Yeah. And what does it mean to have her back for another year? Oh, okay. Sorry. Okay. Well, to have Sophie Jakes come back with her having 59 points as a defenseman is huge. You know, she was a huge point production for our team. But also what people don't also look at is how how often she was on the ice where she did not get scored on, you know, and that, that was huge too. Was I upset? Yeah, I was very upset that Sophie Jakes didn't win. And I think, you know, People have their reasons of how they vote, and I'm not going to get involved in that because, you know, they have that right to do what they want to do, and can, I can't control that. But if you're going to ask me my personal opinion, yes, I just feel that there's only been one defenseman that has won that award, and I believe that defenseman also led the country in points that year. And so if we're going to look at the true body of what a Patty Kazmaier is, and let's really look at that. Is it supposed to embody the spirit? the community service, the academics, and the athletics. Sophie was only a few points behind the forward who had the most points in the year. There was not a big discrepancy in points like in years past when Bozak had 53 points and Amanda Kessel had 100 and something. There was a big gap there. That made sense. But now when you have a few points, I think it was like six or seven points difference between a defenseman and a forward, that to me is nothing. That's a minuscule of points. But then I have Sophie also, you know, what does that tell defensemen now? What are we telling defensemen about this award? You have to have 82 points in order to win it? So what hope is that for a defenseman to ever be crowned to feel like they are the best in the country? I think there was a missed opportunity for defensemen. I think it was a missed opportunity for young girls of color to see Sophie Jakes playing There was a moment that I got a picture from our president because a young girl said to her mom, she's biracial, and she said, well, mom, look, number 18 looks like me. And I just thought that was also a great moment for young kids who are looking to have role models and looking to play sport that doesn't have very many women of color. It was a great opportunity for that as well. Should Sophie win it for that? Absolutely not. She should have won it because she was deserving of it. But I also think it was a missed opportunity with that. Well, I think that answers our questions for you, Nadine. I want to thank you so much for, for joining us here on, on the show. I want to give you the floor before you go. Is there just anything else that you, know, you want people to know about this season, about your program, or, or just anything you'd want to say to the fan base? Yeah, you know, um, a lot of love for those people that, you know, stuck by us and, and cheered us on through the thick and thin because it has been a roller coaster and it, it's a lot. And, 
you know, it's Ohio State, and they demand excellence in their athletics, and there's a high standard. And these young ladies, I can't compliment them enough and how they reached that bar and how they held that standard and also that pressure. I mean, to feel that pressure that the entire state was behind them, they held that and then it didn't overwhelm them or dictate how they played. I mean, we had President Johnson and her spouse, Veronica, come in and talk to the team before they went on the bus, the national championship game. Then you have Gene Smith, our athletic director of the Ohio State, missing men's basketball in the March Madness to be with our women's team while our president was there and, you know, our senior deputy athletic director, Janine Oman. I think that just shows the family that we have at Ohio State and the support we have. And that's why I think we're so successful is because we got people watching our back and supporting us all the time. And I'm very grateful for that. Well, thank you so much, Nadine. We really appreciate your time. And I hope you're able to get a well-deserved vacation in soon. Oh, I got to go to Pittsburgh tomorrow and, and recruit for five days. <laughs> you know what? May, I'm not going to complain. May is a quiet period, but I just got to find quiet. You know, you got two kids and we got a lot of, we got like seven dogs because my husband trains dogs for explosives and narcotics. And, you know, unfortunately one of our dogs is going into surgery tomorrow. She's uh, not feeling well, but I just, I do need a vacation desperately and I'll find it even if it's on a couch underneath a tree or something. I don't even care. Like, I got to find some time. <laughs> but we will. And I'm just enjoying this moment. We're going to go to the Blue Jackets tonight and be honored on the ice. And, again, the Blue Jackets have been so welcoming for us. So excited for the fun in it, too, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You, you, you got to enjoy it. Well, th- thanks again. And we'll be looking forward to seeing how you do next season. Thanks again to Nadine for joining us here on the show. Been uh, a lot of national championships for Ohio State recently. The synchronized swimming team won its 33rd national champion over a weekend. So uh, congrats to them. I know our, our good friend Kevin Harris tweeted out the stat once again this weekend that Ohio State's synchronized swimming team has actually won national championships at a higher percentage then the Ohio State football team wins games. The Ohio State football team all-time is somewhere around 73% for wins in its all-time games, whereas uh, the synchronized swimming team has literally won uh, national championships in three out of every four attempts. So quite a dynasty that they've built over there in the synchronized swimming program. Oh, yeah, that's a juggernaut program. And, you know, everyone thinks about Ohio State football, but they've got some winners down there in the synchronized swimming program, let me tell you. There is a lot to talk about with Ohio State football this week, though, because I thought personally that the the press conference that we had on Tuesday was the most interesting press conference we've had yet this spring, as we learned a lot of interesting stuff from Jim Knowles, who, you know, I said it to you off air, I think Jim Knowles is probably the most interesting assistant coach that we've had to talk to since Jeff Halfley three years ago in terms of he's for one he's really good at explaining the football side of things but we also got a lot of nuggets from him today about you know who's standing out on defense I wasn't necessarily expecting that you were the one who asked him about the Leo position which they're actually now calling the Jack position because in Jim Knowles's words the Leo is the king of a jungle and nobody's earned that yet so right now it's just the Jack position maybe at some point it becomes the Leo position for somebody. But, you know, it's interesting because going into that press conference, I mean, we were actually talking about it 
with a couple of her reporters before the presser started, I was starting to get the vibe that the Leo was this year's version of a bullet and that it was something that we're going to talk about all off season and then maybe we don't actually see it that much on the field. And I still don't know how much we're necessarily going to see it because even on, on Tuesday, you know, Jim Knowles said that, you know, he's not, if a guy looks really good at defensive end, he's not going to take a guy away from playing defensive end, you know, just to play Leo. He's, you know, he's going to try to play to his guy's strengths, but he did say that they started installing the Leo on Tuesday and he actually ran through the list of names who could play the position. And I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. Well, it started off with Jack Sawyer, which appropriately named given the uh, Jack name to that position there. And that was a name that we already thought, you know, potentially could play that role because Jack Sawyer, you know, Larry Johnson last year described him multiple times as more of a finesse pass rusher, meaning, you know, maybe he's got to put on some more weight. He has put on some more weight. He said he's gained 35 pounds since coming to Ohio state, you know, last winter and spring. But I, I still think his speed and the tools that he has as, you know, that kind of finesse pass rusher will probably lend itself to him being able to play that hybrid linebacker defensive end position. But we also heard Mitchell Melton's name mentioned, which is a very positive sign for him because obviously moving from linebacker to defensive end, we saw him doing more of that uh, work with Larry Johnson coming off the edge there in practice on Tuesday. But maybe that's a, a role perfectly tailored to his uh, sensibilities as a guy who you know hasn't gotten on the field very much dealing with injury issues. But now with that kind of position, that, that could be perfectly suited to him. Yeah, there seems to be a little bit of Mitchell Melton hype building. Now, again, I never really know what to make of it when we're talking about it. Because I think a lot of times, you know, a guy makes a position change. We start talking about him a lot because he's moving from, you know, linebacker to defensive end. I still look at that defensive end room and say, well, you've got Zach Harrison and JT Tuimolowau and Jack Sawyer and Tyler Friday and Javante Jean-Baptiste. I don't know how many reps are going to be available for a guy like Mitchell Melton, but there does seem to be some buzz building with him. He was Jim Knowles' silver bullet of the day after the last practice, so uh, there does seem uh, to be you know some positive momentum for him after missing last year with an injury and you know he mentioned you know like you said you know Jack Sawyer a guy that's in there he mentioned Pauline a guy who could be in that mix a Javante Jean-Baptiste as well you know maybe eventually a JT2 in Molowal though it sounds like for right now you know he'd be focused more on playing a traditional defensive end role one guy who will not be in that Leo mix who we thought was going to be in the Leo mix was Kate Stover because the biggest news from actually watching practice on Tuesday morning for the 30 minutes that we were allowed to was that Cade Stover's back at tight end. There had been some rumblings about that, and it's now confirmed that Cade Stover, after starting the spring at linebacker, is now back at tight end. You know, they're still not fully committed to it yet. Ryan Day did say never say never when he was asked if a move was permanent, but it does seem like his focus is on, you know, playing tight end right now. We're talking about a guy now who has now changed sides of the ball you know, multiple times in his career. And this is a guy, he started out as a linebacker. He moved to defensive end. Then he moved to tight end. Then he was back at linebacker for the Rose Bowl and the start of his spring. And now he's back at tight end. So, you know, Kevin Wilson talked about it before the Rose Bowl that, you know, we got to find a position for this guy and he's got to settle into it. And it seems like they're still going through that process, which, you know, for a guy going into his fourth year, I mean, I, I certainly do feel like it's time, like, they need to get him in a role and stick with it. And for now, you know, that plan seems to be tight end, which to me, on one hand is surprising because when I talked to Cade 
back in February, and I believe we'll get to talk to Kate again on Thursday when tight ends meet with the media. You know, but when I talked to him a month ago, he was very excited about playing linebacker, said he felt like that was where he was always belonged, said he thought he could impact the game on every play. And now on Tuesday, coaches were saying that it was Cade's choice to move back to tight end, which my feeling is a lot of that probably has to do with the fact that he's going to get more playing time at tight end than he was going to get at linebacker because right now tight end is the biggest mystery position on his team right now. You know, we've Kevin Wilson said good things about Joe Royer and G Scott on Tuesday, but I think both those guys, you know, maybe they're not quite big enough yet to where they really feel comfortable with either one of those guys being a full-time in-line tight end. Mitch Ross, he's a guy who comes back with some experience, but you know, he's more of a fullback hybrid, so maybe they don't see him as, you know, a starting tight end. And so I think Cade is a guy, by moving back to tight end, he's probably the starting tight end. He's probably the guy who's going to play the most snaps and that inline blocking role. Whereas on defense, I really didn't know exactly what his role was going to look like because, you know, they're still, they're just figuring out the whole Jack Leo thing and maybe he would have factored into that. But we do know the base defense that they're talking about here is going to be a 4-2-5. And so if there's only two linebackers on the field at most times, Ryan Day talked about that log jam at linebacker on uh, Tuesday, and that's one reason, you know, why Cade Stover's playing tight end now, why Mitchell Melton's playing defensive end, because there's just only so many spots that they can get guys on the field there at linebacker. And I, I still don't think we know who those top linebackers are going to be yet, but if Cade Stover wasn't going to be one of those top guys at either of the two main linebacker positions, then he's probably going to get a lot more playing time at tight end than he would have at linebacker. Yeah, Dan, and, and Jim Knowles today was talking about, or on Tuesday, I should say, was talking about the fact that this defense will potentially have to play more of that Sam linebacker look than he has had to play in the past with Oklahoma State and Duke just because, you know, in, in some of those conferences, they, they didn't, you know, try to run downhill or play with the 12 personnel as much as a team like a Wisconsin or an Iowa might this season. So maybe that could have been where they were looking to, to have Cade Stover in the mix. I don't think he was going to be a starter, like you said, at one of those two kind of inside positions there at linebacker. But again, I, I don't think you can be that surprised by, even though Cade Stover talked so much to us, you know, right after the Rose Bowl about how much he loved playing linebacker. And I mean, Kevin Wilson said the same thing again today. He said that Cade Stover, you know, is passionate about playing defense and that maybe he can bring some of that passion, you know, to the offensive side of the ball. But when you just looked at the tight end situation, we've been talking about it on this podcast for weeks at this point about how Things just aren't figured out there, and they don't have that one guy, the, the next man up that they would probably like to have in terms of a guy that, that's got it all. And Cade Stover, a guy that you know has played that position now and you know logs log some significant snaps there behind Jeremy Ruckert, he can, he's a dependable guy. And, and really, his physicality at that position is a, is a huge thing. We, we keep hearing Kevin Wilson talk about how important the tight ends are going to be for, to the success of this offense, and Cade Stover being a really you know big, strong, physical guy something that they're not going to get out of a G Scott necessarily. That's going to be big for, for this team. If they can have Cade Stover there and kind of round out his skill set at tight end. But you know, they, they still said even still Ryan day said, never say never about another position switch for Cade Stover. So it'll be something uh, interesting to watch for sure. But I think we're going to see him probably stay put at tight end for a while right now, just given how, you know, that log jam at, uh, at linebacker is looking. Yeah. We were asked by Browns 88 
said, you know, with Stover returning to the offense, G. Scott adding weight, he said, is there a clear number one or is it going to be more of a platoon at tight end? And I get the vibe it's going to be more of a platoon. That's something that's come up a lot when we've talked to Kevin Wilson is how, you know, all these guys have different skill sets. You know, Mitch kind of has that hybrid fullback skill set. You know, G and Joe, maybe they're kind of more lighter, flex out guys who can stretch the field more as receivers. And then, you know, Cade's more of that bigger inline guy. And so I do think from game to game, it could vary a lot depending on the game plan, depending on matchups. You know, maybe one game, Cade's the guy who plays most of the snaps. Maybe another game, Joe or G plays a lot more snaps. Maybe another game, Mitch plays most of the snaps. I do think, I think my feeling is all four of those guys are going to have a role in some capacity. Yeah, it doesn't mean that all four of them are going to play regularly every game, but I feel like all four of those guys are probably going to have some role within the offense. My feeling right now would be, you know, if Cade's moving back to tight end, I think he's moving back to be the number one tight end. And so if I was, you know, doing my depth chart projection right now, I would put Cade at number one at that tight end spot. But I don't think he's going to be Jeremy Ruckert in the sense of, you know, Jeremy Ruckert was the clear number one at that position last year. I think this year it's probably more likely to be more of a mix of guys that could change depending on game plan week to week. And if you thought the the tight end position didn't get a lot of targets last year, I, I think Cade Stover's, you know, kind of capacity to be that, you know, wide receiving is not going to be as great even as a, a, Jer- a Jeremy Ruckert was. But, you know, we'll see as far as that goes. And, and maybe, you know, that's an opportunity to use a, a G Scott and then that position as well to get some of those guys some targets. But let's talk a little bit more about the, the position room that Cade Stover is leaving now, that linebacker room again, which is a very interesting spot. Of course, Jim Knowles specialty with the linebackers. And, uh, you know, bad news for the Tommy Eichenberg haters out there, Dan, because he was the first player that Knowles mentioned on Tuesday when discussing kind of that group and said that, you know, he's he said Tommy Eichenberg's mastering the Ohio State defense right now this offseason. He called him quiet but fierce and likes what he sees out of Eichenberg, who, of course, had, you know, potentially the, the best performance of his career in the last game for Ohio State in that Rose Bowl. I, I always say it. I always take notice of when coaches bring up a guy without being specifically asked about that guy. And the way that he immediately brought up Tommy when he was asked about the linebackers as a whole tells me Tommy's a guy that you should expect to play a big role in this defense this year. So I, I know some people out there don't want to hear that, but you know, I did on my pre-spring depth chart projection, I did have Tommy as my projected starting Mike linebacker. And right now that has not changed. I mean, we haven't seen nearly anything on the field to where we'd be able to, you know, really say anything. All we've seen from the linebackers so far is just individual drills. And so it's hard to really get any firm sense of what the depth chart's looking like there, but it does seem like Tommy's a guy who is on his way to playing a major role in the defense once again this year. Another thing we saw at practice was Josh Proctor back on the field doing limited drill work. I didn't personally even see him at all in the previous practice we got to see. I don't know if anyone else did, but he had been, you know, seen warming up a little bit before that, but not doing any drills. Of course, he he sustained that season ending leg fracture against Oregon and just week two missed the rest of the season for Ohio State. So a big talking point there is how quickly can he get back and, and get moving for the Buckeyes I'd say a positive sign that he's doing some stuff in practice. Not a whole lot, though. Obviously not teamwork or, or, or contact or anything of that nature. But And also, Ryan Day was basically saying he, he wishes that Proctor could do more right now. And I think you got the sense from listening to Jim Knowles talk about Proctor that he's a big, he's, he might be a big piece for this team as you know that free safety position. 
as a as an eraser back there. And, and Knowles said, we want him, we need him. You know, he's going to be a big part of that secondary. But just the fact that he's out there moving around, I think, is, is probably a good sign for the Buckeyes. I think he can be a big piece of his defense. But if you were asking me right now, who do I think will be the starting free safety in week one? I'd say Ronnie Hickman. Just the way that Jim Knowles is talking about Ronnie Hickman, he said on Tuesday that he wants Ronnie to run the show in the middle of a defense. And I just get the vibe that he he likes that Ronnie Hickman, Court Williams pairing at safety there. And so I do think Josh Proctor, whether it's at, I, I get the positions mixed up at this point, we'll just call them boundary and free safety. I think it's banded and adjuster or whatever, but I think Proctor could potentially play either of those roles. And I think that if he is fully healthy this fall. I think he will have a role at one of them. Whether he's going to be a starter right now, I, I think they don't even know that. I think is the truth because they said he's probably not going to be able to do any team drills this spring. And so I think that really is to be determined. But I think, you know, we've kind of had it, you know, like penciled in like Josh Proctor's going to be the starter at free safety. And, and I don't think that is nearly as, as clear as people might think it is. I think Ronnie Hickman... You know, I think, again, by virtue of Josh Proctor being out right now, I think Ronnie Hickman is presumably, because we're not seeing it, but just from what we're hearing, he's presumably getting most of those reps at that first team free safety spot with Court Williams getting a lot of those reps at that first team boundary safety spot. And I think the question is, assuming Josh Proctor's fully healthy in preseason camp, can he get up to speed with a new defense quickly enough? Can he make up enough ground to seize a starting job back from one of those two? And as high as Knowles has been on Court Williams as a leader and everything like that, he did, you know, say on Tuesday that Court Williams, you know, could have some problems with matchups with wide receivers and th things of that nature, which I think really makes kind of the, the ways you could use those three guys almost, or at least using uh, Proctor or, or Hickman in the, the boundary role instead, depending on the personnel um, you know, matchups there is going to be an interesting thing to watch as well. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because, I mean, you could theoretically, you, you could have Hickman playing free safety with Williams at, at boundary. You could have Proctor at free with Hickman at boundary. I mean, you could even have Hickman at free and Proctor at boundary. So I, I think that's a really good point. Those three guys could be somewhat interchangeable. Again, just like we talked about with the tight ends, based on game plan, based on matchups from week to week, it might look a little different each week just depending on, the personnel they're going up against. And so I think I, ideally they want to have all three of those guys fully healthy and all of them playing, you know, somewhat significant roles. And, you know, he also talked about, you know, the nickel safety position. I mean, I, I certainly think that nickel safety spot is Tanner McAllister's to lose. He's the first newcomer to lose his black stripe. Again, they were talking about him being like a coach on the field uh, on Tuesday, but he did. Jim Knowles did say that he likes what he's seen from Cam Martinez at that spot. And he also revealed that legend Cavazos has been practicing that spot, which is interesting because I did feel like at corner legend Cavazos was probably going to get passed up on the depth chart by Jordan Hancock and Ja'Kalen Johnson. So interesting that they're trying him out there at that nickel spot to see what he can do there. I also thought it was notable and this might be something some people like to hear if we're being honest, that, Bryson Shaw's name did not come up at all when Jim Knowles was talking about the safety. So we're talking about a guy who who played, I think, like the third most snaps on the defense last year, and his name did not come up. You know, Jim Knowles also said that we need to see more guys step up at that, you know, free safety spot. And so I did think that was interesting. Maybe it was just an omission, so I don't want to read too much into it, but 
you know, for a guy who played such a major role on the defense last year, it doesn't seem it doesn't seem likely right now that he's going to play the same kind of role that he did last year. Then let's look back at last week a little bit because we did get to talk to a bunch of defensive linemen for the Buckeyes on Thursday. Uh, it, it was kind of funny hearing uh, several of them be kind of coy about the the Leo position at that time, and that's that was kind of you know part of the reason why we were thinking. Is, is all this kind of getting overblown about the Leo position? But, of course, on Tuesday, we hear Jim Knowles saying that they, they've just started actually implementing it. So they're being pretty hush-hush about it last week. But besides that, Dan, what big takeaways did you have from talking to that uh, mix of guys? Well, I mean, if they were just installing it, I don't even know if they were purposely trying to mislead us by not talking about it. They just didn't necessarily know because they right. weren't doing it yet. But, yeah, we did talk to a bunch of uh, the defensive linemen last week. I mean, I think... Probably the thing that struck me the most was just talking to Noah Potter and him talking about what happened with his eye last year. We we had known that was a thing, but we hadn't talked to him to get the details. And you know, he said that you know if he you know if he hadn't gone to the doctor when he did, they found out that he had a detached retina of it. He could be blind in one eye right now. And so obviously, super glad that you know they were able to fix that and that he's healthy now and able to play football because he was very close to not being able to play football again. And so great that he's back on the field. You know, he said that he had, you know, was dealing with some mental health stuff last year too, seems to be doing better in that regard. So, you know, all of that is, is great to see just for him personally. And he'll be an interesting guy because, you know, they talked about last year about, you know, he could play that free tech spot and moving inside. And, you know, we know Teron Vincent's getting a lot of hype right now. That has continued in the past week. Tyleek Williams is getting a lot of hype. I feel like those are those first two guys at that free tech spot. But, you know, interesting to see if maybe Noah's a guy who can get in that rotation as well. We've seen Larry Johnson be more than willing to, you know, rotate three deep at positions. So to see if Noah can be a guy that can can break in there and play a little bit this year. Certainly would be a bit of a different body type to throw in there at that position as well. But you mentioned Tyleek Williams, and that was one of the big takeaways for me from that uh, interview session, of course, was... Tyleek Williams, you know, he flashed at times last year, but we didn't see him on the field a whole lot. And that was a big question. Why isn't he playing more? You know, do the coaches just not trust him to be out there because he's just a true freshman? Or is it a, a fatigue and conditioning thing? Tyleek Williams basically put it all on himself and said that the main reason he didn't play more last year was because he could only go for about two plays before he would get pretty much winded and gassed. Because, of course, his, his senior uh, season of high school football was uh, postponed due to COVID. So he didn't play that season. He said, you know, for like six months or something, he wasn't even working out all that. He got up to 360 pounds by the time he got to Ohio State, which was, you know, a weight. He said he's, he showed up and, and thought that he would be okay to play at that weight, but quickly realized that he, he would not be able to sustain that shape, you know, at the highest level of college football. Since then, though, he's dropped 40 pounds and the reviews of, about Tyler Williams as of late have been, you know, pretty rave ones because, you know, all the talk about his speed, his 10 yard split being one of the fastest on the team. Ryan Day called him one of the best athletes overall on the entire team. And then we saw what he was able to do even, you know, slightly out of shape last year as a true freshman. And I think now with him getting, you know, in, in a lot better shape, dropping 40 pounds, I think that's a, a definitely a good sign for what we could see out of Tyreek Williams as far as the Buckeyes are concerned. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, if he was 
that good, that impressive and limited action last year when he was out of shape. You know, if he's in shape now, you know, how much better could he be? So he's a really intriguing guy. I mean, I think he's a guy who's got, you know, real star potential there at that defensive tackle spot. And so definitely really intrigued to see what we see from him. I mean, we're you know, again, I mean, Teron Vincent, I mean, he was the first guy Jim Knowles named on Tuesday when he was asked who was impressing him on the defensive line. And so, you know, I know that he's a guy who, you know, hasn't lived up to expectations in his first four years at Ohio State, but people keep saying, like, Teron's coming, like, we've seen it on the practice field. You guys haven't necessarily seen it in games yet, but there's a lot of believers in that building in Teron Vincent. So if, if Teron can become the kind of player of it, everyone believes he has the ability to be. And then if Ty Leak can take his game to a new level this year, then I, they have a potential to have a really dynamic duo at that free tech spot. Yeah. And then just, you know, on, on the defensive ends as well, I just got the sense from hearing Zach Harrison and Jack Sawyer both talk that neither of those guys were really satisfied with the seasons they had last year. And there's still a lot on the table for those guys to accomplish as they enter the 2022 season. And I think a lot of Buckeye fans are going to be hoping that those guys, along with uh, JT, of course, and some of the uh, veteran guys as well, are going to be able to step up and, and make an, more of an impact, especially in terms of the the total number of sacks that those guys get this uh, season as well. Yeah, I mean, you got the impression from hearing Jack that you know maybe he got a little bit frustrated at times last year with not getting as much playing time as he fought, and so you know maybe that was something where he had to you know kind of learn to accept that and kind of maybe change his mindset a little bit. But you know, I would expect that he's going to see you know more playing time this year. Same with JT. And then, you know, Tyler Friday talking to him. I mean, he sound, he says he's feeling really good in his recovery. I know another guy who's not able to do teamwork this spring, but, you know, a guy who believes he's going to be full go by the fall. And we'll see, you know, what he can bring to the table. You know, Jim Knowles indicated Tuesday that Javante Jean-Baptiste had been dealing with an injury as well. So he's been a little bit limited. But, you know, you got a lot of bodies at that defensive end spot. I mean, they should be elite in the defensive end spot. You know, we talked about it last year. They never quite got there last year. For all the talent they had, they never quite played up to their potential. And so we'll see this year, can they really play up to their potential? And so far, you know, I, I thought it was an interesting answer by Jim Knowles when he was asked about how the talent compared to what maybe he expected coming in. And he said he was really impressed with the defensive line. And he's like, and the rest was about what I expected, which tells me maybe the linebackers in the secondary aren't quite where <laughs> they want them to be yet. You know, I think maybe, you know, that kind of tells me right there. But then maybe the linebackers in secondary, you know, have some work to do. But overall, I mean, R Ryan Day, he he said when he was asked about, you know, how he feels where they are, he said, you know, overall, I think we're right where we need to be right now. But if we're right where we need to be the sixth practice of the spring, there's still a long way to go. So overall... You know, the coaches seem pretty confident about what they're seeing so far. It's so early that who knows, but, you know, you do get a vibe right now from the coaches that they feel good about where they're at, which is maybe a little different than last year, because if it felt like at this time last year, we were hearing over and over again about all the reps we missed last year and all the issues that they had. And Maybe that was kind of like a, you know, we talked about it with Chris Holtman last week. Like maybe it was kind of like a warning sign that maybe we weren't quite buying into enough of like, we got a lot of work to do. We got a lot of work to do. It feels right now like there is a confidence on both sides of the ball that they are on the right track. I still think the defense has a long way to go. I mean, Jim Knowles said 
they, they probably would only have two-thirds of a defense installed by the end of spring. So there's a long way to go on that defensive side of the ball. Obviously, offense, it's more about just fine-tuning what they already have. There seems to be a lot of optimism about C.J. Stroud with Kevin Wilson saying that he doesn't even think we've seen uh, close to his ceiling yet. And so, you know, we'll see what C.J. does this year. No doubt he's the starting quarterback. We were asked about, you know, how the backup quarterback competition is looking, and the honest truth is we have not seen anything that would tell us about how Kyle McCord and Devin Brown were doing. I mean, that's just the truth. I'm not going to sit here and pretend like we know something we don't. We haven't seen those guys throw an actual pass in a competitive setting yet this spring, and so I think the only real insight in terms of actually being able to watch the quarterbacks that we're going to get this year is probably going to be him and so I you know I think that'll give us an idea of where Kyle's at where Devin's at but we we just haven't really seen anything to get an idea of whether Devin is making a push at Kyle's backup job right now yeah and to be honest I mean just focusing on those guys right now it's just not the most important storyline when it comes to Ohio State in general it will be a year from now but right now it's not it will end up being but yeah right now you know really keyed in on on the defense and what we can glean you know, out of those guys is certainly a higher on the priority of things that I'm looking for, at least when I'm, I'm going to these open practice periods. But and Frank the Grimes wants to know, do you have an opinion on this topic? Who's going to have the better season this year between Jack Sawyer and JT Tuimoila? I don't know how. <laughs> Tuimoila. I'm not sure how I don't have that down yet. Probably because I don't. Uh, I mean, I heard it mispronounced multiple times during the press conference today. So a lot of people are still uh, struggling with that one. But great question. Great question. I mean, I think I would lean toward Tuimoloau just the way people talk about him. The fact that, you know, he got more playing time than Jack Sawyer last year. The way they talked about how they were so impressed with how he did when he really didn't even have a real offseason. I mean, that just makes me think that, you know, the potential for him to really become a dominant player this year is there. But I think Jack has that potential, too. And so that's a really tough question for me. I, if I have to pick, gun to my head, I'll say to Imolowal, but yeah, I think that could easily go either way. I personally have very high expectations for both of them. Yeah, and we should say also that uh, Knowles was asked about the prospects of JT playing that Leo position also. He said that he feels like maybe he could eventually, but that right now he isn't necessarily putting him at that spot, and, which is interesting because he talked about, you know, he was asked if guys like Nick or Joey Bosa would be good you know, prospects at that position. He said, you know, if guys are, are that good at their natural kind of job, you don't want to necessarily take them away from doing that. You have to wonder, maybe is he thinking of, in terms of that with JT and, and is Jack, you know, maybe more suited for the other role? So that's kind of what's going on in my head when I think about that question as well. Last week was Ohio State Pro Day. And actually, if you want to talk about watching the quarterbacks throw, that's by far the most uh, opportunity we've had to watch an Ohio State quarterback throw this offseason. And that's because C.J. Stroud was the quarterback for Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson at last week's Pro Day. And by all accounts, uh, he impressed NFL scouts last week. You know, it, it was not his Pro Day, but... It was still an opportunity for representatives from all 32 NFL teams to watch C.J. Stroud throw the ball. And, you know, he had some beautiful throws. There was one near the end of a session. It was, you know, a 60-yard deep ball to Garrett Wilson. It was pretty much perfect. And so, you know, there's already a lot of chatter out there about him potentially being the top quarterback in the 2023 NFL draft. And it's early. It's very early. I mean, I think back to a couple years ago, 
people were talking about Justin Fields could be the number one overall pick. You know, Trevor Lawrence was it was a little different. Trevor Lawrence was kind of like the guy, and he ended up being the guy. But you know, at this time two years ago, nobody was talking about Zach Wilson and Trey Lance going ahead of Justin Fields. And so there's still a long way to go. Who knows what's going to happen over the next year? But you know, CJ's certainly a guy who's gonna as that draft cycle starts. We still got to get through this draft cycle, so we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. But he's certainly a guy that's going to be in that conversation from the beginning for the potential number one overall pick a year from now. Yeah, he'll definitely have some competition in that regards, and that'll all play out here over the course of the next season. But yeah, definitely people were raving about you know CJ Stroud's performance there, even though it wasn't about him; it was about the receivers and everybody else. But Still, you know, he made some headlines there. Also, you know, fun to see Cardell Jones back in the mix throwing to some of these, you know, uh, younger Ohio State wide receivers. It's kind of like a, a fantasy amalgamation there of, you know, Ohio State football greats, so to speak. Uh, wants another NFL opportunity. And, and so, you know, got in front of some scouts again. And just, uh, and, and Dan, I know you you actually got to talk to him. I did not, you know, if you want to speak more about what he was talking about with his NIL foundation and everything else he was he had going on there. Yeah, that NIL foundation, I think it's actually launching on Thursday or Friday. The V Foundation, they're calling it. Him and uh, Brian Schottenstein. Brian Schottenstein have started that. And I know, you know, some people like, you know, JT Barrett, Urban Meyer, there's some other people who are involved in that. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of with that whole thing. Like, we haven't really talked about it before this. Like, I'm kind of like in a wait and see mode with that to see what that becomes. Cause this is just all such a new world with all this NIL stuff and these collectives and all that, that, you know, I, I don't know what to believe with stuff like that. I don't know. Is this going to be a legit thing that, you know, brings a lot of NIL deals to the players? I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, I think, you know, talking to Cardale about it, I think he was realistic about it. You know, I asked him like, is the goal to, you know, for every Ohio state football player to get a deal. And he said, you know, that's the goal, but we got a long way to go to that point. And so it's going to be interesting to see, you know, how, how that evolves here in terms of, you know, NIL deals that might come from that foundation that they're calling it. But, you know, certainly for people who have been angsty about why, you know, doesn't Ohio State have one of these collectives that some of these other schools have, one is coming to Ohio State here very soon. Cardale did say that they're they're not planning to target specific recruits you know there was a report out there a week or two ago about how you know i won't say who it is because the report didn't say who it is but you can connect the dots and kind of figure out who it is that a player got a eight million dollar nil deal to sign with a school and so it doesn't sound like this collective is planning to do that i mean i i mean things could change so we'll see but it doesn't sound like that's their plan they're going to focus more on current players and then hope that by recruits seeing that, that then that can be used to Ohio State's advantage in recruiting. And so it'll be interesting to see how that all unfolds. But, you know, Cardale is still hoping for that another NFL opportunity. I mean, I think if we're being honest, it's probably a long shot at this point. I mean, he hasn't been on an NFL roster in almost three years. You know, the last time he played was, you know, the XFL a couple years ago. And so it, it's hard once you've been out of it for that long. You know, I don't know how many NFL teams are going to give him a serious look at this point, but certainly you couldn't ask for a better opportunity than Ohio State's Pro Day when you have representatives from literally every NFL team there. Yeah, and before Stroud and Jones got to throw in the ball to, to Alave, Wilson and company, Really, the, the star of the show before that, Dan, was Master Teague, who, you know, it not necessarily in a lot of draft projections when you, you know, search his name and everything. 
but we knew what, what type of a freak athlete he was and, and the type of physical specimen he was at the running back position, even though it, that didn't necessarily always turn into show-stopping performances you know, at, at the running back position for Ohio State in games. But in terms of just what, what he could do in a combine type event, I mean, this was tailor made for him. And I think he, he, you know, garnered a lot of attention for himself with some of the numbers he posted there and really, you know, got a lot of oohs and ahs from the, the crowd and, and, and the scouts and his teammates at the pro day event. I mean, you can't help but ooh and ah just when you see him. I mean, yeah. the dude is ripped. I mean, all of these guys are, you know, amazing athletes and in great shape, but he looks different. Like he stands out from everyone else on the team when you just see his build he's out there working out with his shirt off and you are thinking man like this guy is cut so you know he just his build is impressive and then to see his numbers i mean i think we expected him to put up good numbers but then to see him actually do it i mean a 4-4-4-40 at his 10 foot 11 broad jump 27 reps in the bench he would have had the most bench press reps and the high or the longest broad jump of any running back at the combine and so for a guy in his shoes, that's exactly the kind of day he needed to give himself a chance to get drafted. Will he get drafted? I still don't know because obviously, you know, his last year at Ohio State, he didn't play that much. He was the third string running back, didn't have a ton of production there. And so, you know, I think he's still, you know, kind of fringe late round pick at this point, but he's going to get a shot somewhere with those kind of measurables. He's going to get a shot somewhere. Somebody is going to take a chance on him because there just aren't a lot of people out there with those kind of measurables. And, and you know, the, the idea that his best football could be in front of him, it's certainly possible with those measurables. I mean, we didn't necessarily see him ever put it all together to become a, an elite running back at Ohio State. But, man, if that size, that speed, that you know, just all of it. There's definitely going to be some NFL teams that are intrigued by him as either a late round pick or undrafted free agent. And beyond the guys we've already mentioned, of course, Antoine Jackson, Haskell Garrett, Tyreek Smith, Thayer Munford, Nicholas Petit-Ferrer all did some stuff at, at Pro Day as well. Any of those guys do anything that particularly jumped out of you, Dan, or any other, you know, observations from our time at Pro Day that stood out to you? Yeah, I don't think there was really anything that was really jumped off the page other than Master Teague. I, and I think, you know, all those guys, you know, most of those guys you mentioned had already worked out at the Combine. And so there wasn't, you know, a, a ton more that they needed to do at Pro Day. You know, it was good to see, you know, a guy like Chris Booker out there who is, you know, a special teamer who, you know, is trying to, you know, get a shot in the NFL. You know, we'll see whether or not that shot comes, but I thought he performed well. I thought he looked good in the receiver drills, put up good numbers in the testing. And so, you know, I'll be interested to see, does anyone take a shot on him? You know, same with Demario McCall. You know, will anybody take a chance on him after his, you know, uh, six-year career moving from position to position almost as many if not more position changes than Cade Stover so it'll be interesting to see you know for some of those guys you know I think we've talked about it before you know those seven guys who got to the combine those are the seven guys we definitely expect to get drafted for Ohio State this year then you have those guys like Master Teague Antoine Jackson Demario McCall Chris Booker you know they might be longer shots to get drafted but can any of those guys you know stick around on the roster and, and carve out an NFL career you know I think, you know, it's going to it's not going to be an easy path for any of them, but I certainly don't put it past any of those guys that one or two of them might, you know, end up sticking around in the NFL. All right, Dan, let's move over to some basketball talk here, because, of course, we are reaching the apex of March Madness here. The final four field is set and Villanova, obviously, in that midst as well. 
of course, beat Ohio State in that second round matchup. I don't think anyone's going to be shocked to see Villanova, you know, in another Final Four here under Jay Wright. But, you know, does that soften the blow of Ohio State's loss, given that, you know, it, they, they lost to a team that is, you know, among the, the four best teams in the country right now in terms of how the bracket played out? Does that do anything, Dan, do you think, to kind of, you know, silence the critics a little bit that were especially uh, angsty about Chris Holtman's, you know, another early exit for the Buckeyes in the tournament? I don't think it's going to silence the critics, but <laughs> I, I do think it probably, I think it's probably one of those things that, you know, it, people are going to use it. I think if people are defending Chris Holtman and they uh, are looking for a reason to defend Chris Holtman, that's going to be one more thing to use. If you're one of these people who's in the anti-Chris Holtman camp, then you're probably going to ignore it and say it doesn't matter. But I, 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 you know, I think what it says to me is, you know, it, it does confirm a fact that, you know, Ohio State was not supposed to beat Villanova. Like, that's not to say, that's not to give a full excuse to not make him a Sweet 16 again, but it would have been an upset if Ohio State beat Villanova. I mean, I remember, you know, seeing some replies like to my tweet after that game, there were people saying that the loss to Villanova was embarrassing and pathetic. It, it was not. I mean, it would have been an upset if Ohio State beat Villanova. And so I think it goes back to, again, the fact that if you're going to, if you're going to critique Ohio State coming up a little bit short this year, it, it should be more about struggling down the stretch of a regular season, falling to a seven seed, than it is about losing to Villanova because Villanova has proven it. It's legitimately one of the best teams in the country this year. And for Ohio state to win that game was going to be very difficult. And another thing that, that may soften the blow maybe for, for some of the critics out there is the fact that, you know, Ohio state is not the only big 10 team that, that struggled to make a deep run into the tournament, because of course not a single big 10 team of the nine that made it into the NCAA tournament actually made it into the elite eight. The sweet 16 was as far as anybody got there in the big 10 I think it's safe to say, Dan, the Big Ten is probably a little bit overrated, no? I mean, two years in a row to, you know, be as disappointing in the tournament as it's been. And granted, I mean, you could, again, you can make the case fair, but well, none of them were one or two seeds, so none of them were really supposed to make the Elite Eight. But I think to two years in a row to have nine teams in the tournament both years and one of those 18 teams makes the Elite Eight, uh, that's certainly disappointing, especially when you see you know, the ACC put two teams in the final four free and the elite eight and what was supposed to be a down year for the ACC. And so I think it's un undoubtedly, you know, disappointing for the big 10. And I think you know, the, the deeper question is why is the big 10 struggling in the big dance? Is part of it that these teams are beaten up on each other in a regular season. They, they play their conference tournament later and these teams are coming in beat up. I think that could be part of it. Is part of it the fact that the Big Ten is more of a, you know, big man kind of league and then the tournament is more dominated by guard play? You know, I think that's interesting. I think the one thing that made me think of is I think one of the criticisms of Chris Holtman that we've heard over the last few years is we need a big man. We need a center. And I know one thing Chris Holtman and his staff have said is they don't necessarily want to be a big man team. Like they kind of want to play smaller. And I think some of that is validated by what we've seen in the tournament where it's the teams that are making deep runs are typically the teams that have the best guard play. And so, you know, I think, you know, this idea of, if, you know, to consistently win in the big 10, you need this great center, but to win in the NCAA tournament, you don't necessarily need that great center. It might be more about having better guard play. And so, you know, I think that's an interesting topic that we don't really have time to uh, delve into much deeper today, but I, I think 
you know, it, it, it is interesting just for the Big Ten as a whole, like, you know, it, it is the way the Big Ten plays basketball not conducive to winning in the tournament in March. And you know, if you're Ohio State or any of these teams, you've got to find a way to overcome that. And Dan, I hate to, uh, to out you like this in front of our listeners here, but I do believe that you may be in last place in our uh, staff I am. predictions pool. And, and so I want you to own up to that, Dan. But I also, beyond that point, I still would like to know who, who you have, you know, proceeding from here on out in the NCAA tournament as well. I mean, it feels like it's Duke's year, doesn't it? I mean, if could be in Coach K's last year, it just feels like everything's setting up for Coach K to go out on top. I mean, it, I mean... It, I think it's going to be a fun Final Four. I mean, Duke-UNC in the Final Four in Coach K's final year. I mean, it would have been fun to see St. Peter's make that Cinderella run to the Final Four, but like Duke-UNC Final Four, like it can't get any bigger than that. So I'm really interested to watch both of these games this weekend and then the title game on Monday. But my prediction, not that you should take my prediction for anything because I literally went 0 for 8 in predicting the Elite Eight, which by far the worst bracket year I've ever had. But... My prediction, in hopes of being a little bit better with this prediction, I'm going to go with Duke over Kansas in the title game. I'm picking the exact same because, you know, Villanova, the, the injury to, to Justin Moore, a big part of that, you know, would certainly seem to, to be an advantage for Kansas a little bit there. Obviously, Duke, the much higher seeded team, the North Carolina in that matchup as well. So, you know, I like that matchup as well. But just the fact that you're predicting it makes me think that it actually might not come true at this point. <laughs> yeah, bet the house on UNC and Villanova. Back on Ohio State uh, news, obviously EJ Liddell, no surprise here. He's officially entering the NBA draft. There really wasn't much hope that he was going to come back uh, necessarily. But, he, you know, he, he certainly leaves quite a legacy with Ohio State. Unfortunately for him, not in terms of making any type of deep run in the NCAA tournament. Obviously, his, his true freshman season the tournament was canceled his second season when he actually became, you know, a full-fledged star for the Buckeyes. They had the the unceremonious exit in the first round to Oral Roberts. That was, you know, probably the, the, their best chance there to make some noise in the postseason. Of course, losing in the Big Ten championship game as well. And then in his third season, you know, an even better season for EJ Liddell. You know, much improved on defense, too. Became the Big Ten's leading shot blocker, almost a 20-point-per-game score. But in the end, you know, it, it kind of goes out with, you know, another first weekend exit there for the Buckeyes, but a, a super classy guy, EJ Liddell, I mean, you know, really prided himself on um, knowing everybody's name in the program, whether it be, you know, people that that have nothing to do with, you know, that aren't actually on the roster and, and being a, a great guy to everyone in the building. That was really big for him. And he wanted to be remembered like a guy like Aaron Kraft, you know, who's so beloved by the Ohio State fan base. You know, I don't know how if he'll be remembered in quite the same way, just because Aaron Kraft was part of some really good Buckeye teams as well. But, you know, certainly leaves behind a, a quite quite a nice legacy there for Ohio State. Yeah, I mean, I think E.J. Liddell is somebody that, you know, I would hope that Ohio State fans would remember very fondly for his three years at Ohio State because he had a fantastic career. You know, definitely a guy who did things the right way and, you know, was one of the best players in the country this past year. And so, you know, great career for him, a guy who wasn't the most highly touted recruit coming in, but is very likely going to be a first round pick this summer and we'll see now the big question of course becomes will Malachi Branham join him in the NBA draft and most likely we're not going to have a firm answer on that for a while because my guess would be Malachi's probably going to test the NBA draft process and then make a final decision later depending on what kind of feedback he gets so it might be a little while before we know exactly what's going to happen with Malachi but you know in that respect 
Ohio State does have to work on evaluating its options in the transfer portal right now because if it loses Malachi especially, I mean, even if it doesn't lose Malachi, they're still likely to bring in one or two players. But if they do lose Malachi, they're really going to need to bring in, you know, I think some veteran talent to bolster this roster. And one guy who I believe is visiting Ohio State as we speak, former West Virginia forward, Jalen Bridges, I reached out to our former Real Pod Wednesdays co-host Colin Haas Hill, who is a known West Virginia fan, and, and he told me he told me that as soon as Jalen Bridges entered the portal, he thought that Ohio State might be a potential landing spot for him because Ohio State had recruited Jalen coming out of high school. And he told me that he thought Jalen would be a very good fit. So I'm intrigued to see where that one ends up. I think he's also being recruited by, you know, Michigan State and Alabama. So he's got some options, but it sounds like he is maybe one potential intriguing option as a guy who would probably play the four for Ohio State and could maybe help replace some of that production that's going out the door with EJ and Kyle both leaving. Yeah, he was a top 100 recruit a couple of cycles ago, averaged 8.4 points per game for West Virginia this past season, which, you know, doesn't jump right uh, you know out at you when you look at his uh, stats, but certainly the Buckeyes need some veteran players that are, you know, proven starters at a high level. And, you know, we talked about it like last week, some of the, the other transfer portal guys, that Chris Holman and company have, have kind of taken a look at have come from, you know, kind of smaller leagues that have to make a jump up. This wouldn't necessarily be that same type of deal there. So that could be a situation that works out. We'll certainly be keeping an eye on that as things progress here. Minbuck wants to know, Dan, why all the angst about Holman and frustration that the Bucks aren't a perennial Sweet 16 team? Why can't Buckeye fans accept that we're just not into basketball and that's okay? Uh, what, what say you to that, Dan? I think we talked more than enough about this last week, if we're being honest. I think the last two weeks, if we're being honest, I mean, I, I really don't want to rehash this conversation all over again. You know, I mean, you know, one thing I've said before on the show is I'm not going to tell you all the listeners how to think. I might, you know, make some suggestions about certain things. And certainly when it comes to stuff like, you know, how to talk to athletes on social media and stuff like that, I may have some stronger opinions on that. But, you know, in terms of what your expectations for the basketball program should be, I mean, I think... You know, some people really care about Ohio State basketball. There's some Ohio State fans who love football. And they don't really care about basketball. Either one of those is fine. I mean, I think the only I think the one thing I would say to Minbuck's point is. Yeah, the expectations for Chris Holtman should not be the same as they are for Ryan Day. And they're not because, I mean, if Ohio State football finished outside the top 16 teams in the country once, people would be calling for Ryan Day's head. So the expectations are not the same they shouldn't be the same. At the same time, I think it's fair for the people who really do care about Ohio State basketball, I think it's fair for them to expect more out of a program than what Ohio State has accomplished over the last five years. With that being said, want to make clear, because there were a couple people that were you know, very upset in the comments of the podcast post on the site last week. I'm not sure if those people actually listen to the podcast, but do want to make clear of it in, in case anybody was confused. I know I wasn't. I'm pretty sure Griffin wasn't. Neither of us were saying on last week's show that we think Chris Holtman should be fired right now. I, I don't think he should be. I'm, I definitely don't think he will be. I said it last week. I think Chris Holtman will be the coach at Ohio State for at least two more years. I think if in two years from now, if we're still talking about Ohio State hasn't made the Sweet 16 and Ohio State hasn't won a Big Ten championship over Chris Holtman, then yeah, I think at that time, I, I think it's fair to definitely have 
that conversation. But, you know, I, I don't think, you know, anything like that is imminent and I don't even think it should be. I just think, you know, I understand like, you know, our Chris Lauterbach who wrote a piece about last week for 11 Warriors about, you know, expectations. He's somebody who's been following Ohio State basketball for a long time. I think it's a, a very valid point of view to say, you know, this is Ohio State. It's one of the biggest athletic departments in the country. Our expectations should be higher than what we're accomplishing right now. Like, to, you know, I think it's been nine years since Ohio State made the Sweet 16. Like, for people to want a little bit more out of a program, I think that's totally acceptable. I think any reasonable Ohio State basketball fan understands that Ohio State is not Duke, it's not Kentucky, it's not Kansas. Ohio State is a football school, not a basketball school. It's unlikely that Ohio State is ever going to be consistently elite in basketball. But that's not to say that the potential for this program isn't higher than what the results have been. And so, you know, I think, you know, I'm not going to tell anybody out there like how much you should care about Ohio State basketball or, you know, what you should necessarily expect from Ohio State basketball. But I understand you know, where people are coming from, the people that want more out of a program. You know, I'm not personally somebody who's in the camp of, you know, fire Holtman or anything like that. I mean, I think, you know, I think Holtman overall has done a good job. I don't think he's done a great job. And I I mean, to me, you know, that's not even an insult to Chris Holtman. It's just to say that I think before I can say that Chris Holtman has done a great job, he has to really accomplish something of note. And I think to to this point, that just hasn't happened yet. That's not to say that I don't think Chris Holtman is a good coach. It's just a statement of fact that they have not made a deep tournament run yet. They haven't won a Big Ten title yet under Chris Holtman. And so I think, you know, to say that he is doing a great job as Ohio State men's basketball coach, I think there has to be a, you know, real notable accomplishment to his name. And in my opinion, that is not there yet. But that's not to say that I think... Chris Holtman is a bad coach or that he should be replaced or that there's somebody else who should come in and replace him. I still think, you know, a top recruiting class come in, but I still think there's plenty of potential for Chris Holtman to accomplish big things at Ohio State. But I do understand where people are coming from when, you know, they're maybe getting a little impatient as to why that's not happening yet. Well, people really seem to take umbrage with, uh, you know, our last podcast about the fact that, that we weren't feeling particularly hopeful about next season in terms of it being an improvement upon this season. And I would just say that, guys, if you're just looking at things, I mean, in terms of the the proven commodities and, and known, you know, entities there, that I just don't see how you could be more hopeful about next season than you were coming into this past season. Now, if Ohio State, you know, gets, gets a couple good breaks for the program in terms of Malachi Branham coming back, Justice Suing coming back, landing a couple more, you know, high-level transfer guys, and you have some breakout, you know, true freshman performances, then yeah, maybe that could all really materialize. But I just think in terms of, if you're looking at things kind of realistically, I don't see how you're gleaning a more positive takeaway about the, the prospects of next, next season than you, you would have had this past year. Right, and that's not even a comment on Chris Holtman. That's a comment on the roster. And it's not even entirely Chris Holtman's fault. I mean, again, we talked about it. He's bringing in a top five recruiting class. He could bring in transfers who could, you know, maybe really raise the potential of next year's team. But I do think from a realistic point of view, when you're talking about potentially losing two first round NBA draft picks, it's realistically, I think it's more likely they take a step back than a step forward next year in terms of results. But, you know, certainly I could be proven wrong on that. 
The women's basketball team, their tournament run also came to an end, Dan, in the Sweet 16, defeated by Texas, of course. Wasn't a huge surprise there, but you know, still a great season for Kevin McGuff's team overall. Obviously, the Big Ten title, but again, the, the Ohio State women's basketball team has not won a Sweet 16 game since 1993, so that's, of course, still a hump for them, but I think still, a, a, obviously, a positive year when you look at it, for sure. And uh, Taylor Mikesell as well, announcing that she's going to return to Ohio State you know, with, with J.C. Sheldon uh, coming back, Madison Green coming back from injury. I think the prospects look pretty good for that team when you're looking at, at, at next year. Yeah, I think overall a very positive season for the Buckeyes, a team that didn't necessarily come into this year you know, with high expectations, coming off a postseason ban the year before, losing Madison Green to a season-ending injury before the year. I, I don't think that many people predicted that they would win the Big Ten, and so to do that in the regular season was big, and then to make a Sweet 16 run in the tournament, that was big too. And like you said, I think the potential for that team going into next year is very high, with, with Madison Green coming back, you know, Taylor Mikesell, J.C. Sheldon. I mean, that's a team that I think should have won backcourts in the country, you know, they, right now they're not slated to lose a ton. You know, there's always the possibility of more, you know, transfers or, or anything like that. But, you know, as of right now, they're losing, you know, Braxton Miller, Tanea Beecham, who were two, you know, regular players in the rotation this year. Also, Kateri Poole, who was a backup point guard. She announced that she's entering the transfer portal. But overall, they're bringing back a lot of their core from last year. Yeah, I think especially in the backcourt, they should have the potential to really have one of the best backcourts in the country. Uh, you know, frontcourt is maybe where some questions would be, but I might butcher her name with uh, Rebecca Mikulskova coming back in the front court. I think there's a lot of potential for that team next year. So it'll be interesting to see. Can they finally get over that hump next year? Can Kevin McGuff and that team finally make a run to the Elite Eight next year? I think with the talent they have coming back, it's not going to be easy, but it certainly will be possible. And yet in the coming days here, of course, on uh, Thursday, we'll be back at the Woody Hayes Athletic Center talking to some offensive linemen and tight ends like you alluded to before. On, on Saturday, we might be able to you know, be involved with the, the Student Appreciation Day as well, which we haven't you know, been, been allowed to do in a couple of years here. And then beyond that, more spring football coverage coming right at you. Uh, I think, what, eight more practices before, prior to the spring game. So we'll have all of that you know, locked in and, and covered for all of you guys listening out there. Yeah, hope you guys enjoyed a loaded show this week. Thanks again to Nadine Muzzerall for joining us, and we'll talk to you again next week.